This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, my name is Ashley Mason, and I'm an assistant professor of psychiatry at UCSF, and I'm here with Rob Lustig, who is a neuroendocrinologist here at UCSF as well. And today we're talking about his new book called The Hacking of the American Mind. So, Rob, why don't you start by telling us um, what the book is about in a way that folks without a medical degree would understand. Actually, I wrote this book because we've suffered a crisis in our culture, and I believe it comes down to a mistake that we've made between the interpretation of two of our most important and positive emotions, pleasure and happiness. A lot of people equate the two, but I'm here to tell you that they are completely different. A lot of people think that they're exactly the same. In fact, on the internet, you can find definitions that actually conflate and confuse the two. So what are the differences between pleasure and happiness? And I believe there are seven. Pleasure is short-lived, happiness is long-lived. Pleasure is visceral, happiness is ethereal. Pleasure is taking, happiness is giving. Pleasure can be achieved with substances, happiness cannot be achieved with substances. Pleasure is experienced alone, happiness is experienced in social groups. The extremes of pleasure all lead to addiction, whether they be substances or behaviors. Yet there's no such thing as being addicted to too much happiness. And finally, number seven, most important, pleasure is dopamine and happiness is serotonin. Now, these are two biochemicals. These are two neurotransmitters. These are two chemicals that the brain makes mm -hmm. and uses to communicate between one neuron brain cell and another. Now, why do we care? So what? Well, it turns out dopamine excites the next neuron. And neurons, when they're excited too much, too frequently, tend to die. So the neuron has a defense mechanism against that. What it does is it reduces the number of receptors that are available to be stimulated in an attempt to try to mitigate the damage. When you say to be stimulated, you mean to be excited? To be excited, that's right. And so we have a name for that process. It's called downregulation. And a lot of different chemicals in the body do that. Now, you get a hit, you get a rush, the receptors go down. Next time, you need a bigger hit to get the same rush because there are fewer receptors to occupy. And you need a bigger hit and a bigger hit and a bigger hit until finally taking a huge hit to get nothing. That's called tolerance. And then when the neurons start to die, that's called addiction. Serotonin, however, is inhibitory. It's not excitatory. It inhibits its receptor to provide contentment to zen out, if you will. So you can't overdose the serotonin neuron. And what does it mean to inhibit a receptor? What it means is it binds, but it doesn't activate the process beyond the receptor. So what it does is it basically slows down those neurons okay. instead of causing them to fire up. And, so by doing, and in doing so, you end up with the process of contentment, that feeling of one with the world, if you will, that thing we call happiness. Now, there's one thing 
that downregulates serotonin, dopamine. So the more pleasure you seek, the more unhappy you get. And Las Vegas, Madison Avenue, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and Washington, D.C. have very specifically and in a coordinated fashion confused and conflated the term happiness with the term pleasure so that you can buy happiness so that they can sell you their junk. It's called the American economy and it's based on hedonic substances substances that drive pleasure rather than happiness. And in the process we have become most decidedly unhappy. And the problem is you can't fix a problem unless you identify what the problem is. That's the reason for this book. In the title of the book you use the word hacking. Um, this sounds pretty dark and conspiratorial. Do, do you really think that there's been a plot to control our minds? So let's first of all I, uh, define the word hack. So hack has a relatively short uh, uh, history. Uh, the very first time the word hack was used uh, other than in a butchery was uh, in 1955 when it was used at MIT, the Model Railroad Club, to talk about an unusual solution to a complex problem. And that's what it meant for quite a while. An example. Stealing a car is a felony offense. Stealing a Boston police car, dissembling it, carrying each piece up five floors to the Great Dome of MIT, reassembling it, and putting a mannequin of a Boston police officer with a box of donuts in the front seat, that's a hack. Over the course of the next several decades, the word hack became synonymous with clever approaches to complex computer problems, which we now call white hat hacking, which is very prevalent and common here in Silicon Valley. But in the process, we also now have black hat hacking, as we learned during the 2016 presidential election when the Russians hacked Hillary Clinton's emails. So then black hat hacking is, can you define that? So it's a malevolence. In an attempt to basically blackmail or to cause the crashing of a computer, uh, to uh, wipe out a hard drive. So clearly not something good. And the question is, how can your brain be hacked? And the answer is, well, it doesn't get hacked with computer code, but it gets hacked with false information. And in fact, We've had false information since the time of um, the Romans. It's called propaganda. So what's the difference between marketing, which is what companies say they do, and propaganda? And the answer is the truth. That's the difference. When companies express a point of view that furthers their goals, then that point of view references true facts. That's called marketing. When a company expresses a point of view and tries to advance its goals based on misinformation, that's called propaganda. So the difference between marketing and propaganda is the truth. The corporations of America today have engaged in a very specific attempt to 
market their propaganda in order to get us to do different things than we might otherwise have done. Examples. The easiest one, of course, is food, and the one that I've written about previously. The idea that foods can be healthy goes back a long way. In fact, not eating food is not healthy. It's called starvation. The question is, which foods are the ones that ultimately lead to health? And the answer is, not the ones that the food industry has touted. In fact, we have the data that demonstrates that they knew what they were doing. When we went low fat in the 1970s, the Sugar Association knew what it was doing. In fact, there is a now paper trail of the communications between the Sugar Association and two Harvard School of Public Health scientists to specifically exonerate sugar and finger-saturated fat as the culprit for our cardiovascular disease debacle. Turns out, we now have the data to show that that was completely untrue, that we have actually experienced an increase in obesity, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cancer, and dementia because of our processed food diet, which we were told was healthy. And they knew back in the 1970s that that was not the case. That's black hat hacking. Our minds have been hacked to believe certain things that are not true. And it's been a very specific corporate plot. Now, I won't go so far as to say it was a conspiracy because we do not have data that says that different corporations colluded with each other to specifically defraud the American public and to inflict malice upon the American public. But we do have the data to show that individual companies engaged in their own plots to do so. Another example, of course, was tobacco. Tobacco made it very clear for many years that there was no relation between nicotine and addiction, except that they had the data that said otherwise. And they lied to Congress very specifically. So tobacco, alcohol, food guns, energy. These are all hedonic substances and or behaviors, and they have costs. And we're paying those costs now. We're paying it in terms of our addiction crisis. We're paying it in terms of our opioid, our depression crisis. We're paying it in terms of lives lost, and we're paying it in terms of our health care debacle. And you can't reverse it till you understand it. You can't pull yourself out of the ditch until you figure out how you drove into it. So, Rob, in your book, you talk a lot about the difference between pleasure and happiness. Mm -hmm. In just a few sentences, can you tell us what is the major distinction between the two? So, from a social standpoint, pleasure is the feeling that this feels good. I want more. Mm -hmm. Happiness or contentment is the feeling of this feels good. I don't want or need anymore. They're not the same. In fact, pleasure begets more pleasure. This is what the casinos are counting on. On the other hand, 
I don't want or need anymore says, you know, what, if there was something to purchase, I don't need to purchase it. In fact, all of the things that say this feels good, I don't want or need anymore are things that you can't buy. They're not for sale. They are, however, accessible to every single human being on the planet. They're all the things your mother told you, but you forgot. I call them the four C's. First one, connect. So interpersonal connection turns out to be extraordinarily important for happiness. And the reason is because face-to-face, eye-to-eye connection generates something called empathy. Empathy activates a specific set of neurons in your brain which have been termed mirror neurons so that the feelings of the person you're talking to ultimately become adopted by you as well. And in that process, you generate contentment. So interpersonal connection is extraordinarily important. This is one of the reasons why we have religion, is for that interpersonal connection. Turns out the faith is not important. The interpersonal connection is. But then you have to ask the question, well, what about non-interpersonal connection? Like, for instance, Facebook. Turns out Facebook actually sows unhappiness, in part because there is no interpersonal connection. There's no serotonin rise. There's a dopamine rise every time a message flashes across your screen. It's called variable reward, and it actually causes you to increase your uh, uh, act, actions to uh, uh, access more Facebook. And that actually drives further depression, and the data now show that this is a vicious cycle. Second one, contribute. And contributing means not to your bank book, means to outside of yourself. So you can do it within your work by making the work a better place for your colleagues, or you can do it outside of your work by volunteerism or philanthropy. So there are a lot of different ways to accomplish, you know, contribute, but ultimately it has to be outside yourself. Third one, cope. So in order to reduce stress, thereby improving your serotonin receptors to allow for better feelings of happiness, there are three things. One, sleep, something we're getting much less of, in part because of our screens. In fact, my colleague Christine Madsen at UC Berkeley showed that eighth graders who slept with their cell phone in their room got 28 minutes less sleep each night than those who charged their cell phones outside the room. A recent study showed that if the cell phone is sitting on the desk, even if it's off, it takes three times as long to accomplish the task as if the cell phone is not there. By being a distraction, and from the blue light emanating from the screen and actually activating that part of your brain that keeps you awake. Cell phones and other screens, which now have dominated our lives, have actually promoted unhappiness. Second thing within COPE, mindfulness. We know a lot about mindfulness. We study it, uh, along with other people at the Osher Center here at UCSF. In fact, multitasking 
is probably the single biggest destroyer of happiness that we have. People pride themselves on their being able to multitask. Companies look for the people who can multitask the best. Turns out only about 2.5% of the population can actually do two things at once. Everybody else, it's smoke and mirrors. And the more things you take on, the quicker you get unhappy and the lower your serotonin goes. And finally, within COPE, the last one is exercise. And it turns out exercise will tamp down dopamine and increase serotonin on its own. And when you use exercise as a mitigator of stress, you can clearly advance your serotonin in a very positive way. And then lastly, the fourth C, cook for yourself. When you go out to a fast food restaurant, you don't know what you're eating. And it turns out there are three items in your diet that matter in terms of the serotonin dopamine connection. The first one, tryptophan. Tryptophan is the amino acid that is the building block to make serotonin. Happens to be the rarest amino acid in our diet. It's mostly found in fish and flax. We don't eat a lot of fish um, in general. It's uh, uh, probably low on our list, in part because of shipping processes, you know, farmed fish versus wild fish, etc. But the bottom line is fish have a very high level of tryptophan. Omega-3 fatty acids, those are found also in fish, and they are found in um, uh, certain uh, foodstuffs uh, that are grown mostly algae, things that eat algae ultimately increase your omega-3s. So fish eat algae, we eat the fish. Why are omega-3s important? Because they provide stability to neuronal membranes, so it's less likely that neurons will die. And they can be compressed easier, they allow for neurons to come back to shape so that you don't kill off the neurons that uh, ultimately drive happiness. And then lastly, the negative one, fructose, sugar, the one that actually drives dopamine up, also drives serotonin down. So high tryptophan, high omega-3 fatty acids, low fructose. That's called real food. When you cook for yourself, that's what you're making, that's what you're eating. And you're cooking for yourself and your family. You get the interpersonal connection. You get the contribution to something outside yourself. It's basically a win-win-win. On the other hand, <clears throat> fast food, you're eating alone, you're eating things you don't know what's in it, and you're eating a hell of a lot of sugar because every item at the fast food restaurant has been spiked with added sugar, specifically for their purposes, not for yours. So we have moved on to a fast food consumption society. And in the process, we have actually impeded our ability to get happy. And we have to understand these problems in order to unravel them. A lot of the substances that you're talking about are everywhere. They're ubiquitous. Indeed. How do we become aware of our addictions to them? Well, it can be hard. I can tell you, I know what I'm addicted to. Hmm. Caffeine. My wife and I, two codependents with the Krups. <laughs> um, you know, the fact is that a lot of people don't necessarily understand that they are addicted. They know they need something. When want becomes need, that's usually a sign of addiction. And I will tell you, I need my two cups of coffee in the morning just to function. 
and I'm not proud of it. On the other hand, if you take my Starbucks away from me, I will kill you. Mm. Um, a lot of people say they have a sweet tooth. That's usually a sign of sugar addiction, if they say that. If they find themselves not being able to concentrate on their job or on their family because this craving is calling to them and it's interfering with their daily life in some fashion or in their work, that's usually a sign of addiction. And that can happen from shopping, from porn, from uh, video games and cell phones. That, of course, has been the most recent addition to this. If you find yourself checking your cell phone every two minutes, waiting for a new email, that's usually a sign of cell phone addiction. And it works the same way in terms of the dopamine. There's a uh, paradigm that companies use to get us addicted. It was outlined in a book by Nir Eyal called uh, uh, Hooked. Uh, it starts with a trigger, an itch, if you will, okay, and then that itch has to be scratched, and presumably the scratch is something that's socially acceptable, like, for instance, checking a cell phone, and then variable reward. Now, if the reward's the same every time, it won't become a habit. It won't become an addiction. But if it's different each time, then there is an impetus and a pressure to keep doing it and keep checking it and ultimately it becomes part of your daily life. That is what cell phones have done over the last 10 years. <clears throat> They've basically occupied this primary position within our culture to the point where we almost now can't even concentrate on our jobs. And the last part of the cycle is investment. That is you have to be willing to plunk down another $299 for the next iPhone in order to keep the addiction going. And indeed, virtually everyone in America has opted for that addiction virtually over everything else. Um, so this has been a uh, slow but nonetheless steady uh, drumbeat that has uh, you know, preoccupied America, and uh, not just America, but the entire world. And it's one of the reasons why Apple and Samsung duke it out for market share uh, because, um, you know, basically uh, it's about, um, you know, who's going to supply the rest of the world with their addiction. So then craving is a big component of it. Being willing to forego these components of, of happiness is another component. And then being willing to invest. Well not necessarily forego feelings of happiness. The problem is that you have to know what happiness is in order to be able to... Uh, Foregoing the connection and the contribution and all of these things. Right. So the question is, why is it that pleasure and happiness have become confused? Did industry start that? It actually started earlier than that. It started with the Declaration of Independence. Remember life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Well, turns out life is going in the wrong direction. We now know that lifespan, average lifespan in the United States is going down for the first time. Liberty, turns out, depending on where you were born, that determines your final salary. If you were born in uh, Palm Springs or in Los Angeles, 
you make more money than if you were born in Baltimore or Detroit for the exact same job. We've constructed ghettos of our own volition, whether they be inner city ghettos or, you know, walled ghettos in fancy parts of town. They're still prisons, gilded ones sometimes, but prisons nonetheless. And finally, happiness. Remember that clause, the pursuit of happiness? It was said twice, once in the Virginia Declaration of Rights in 1776, and then reappropriated by Thomas Jefferson for the Declaration of Independence. One of the substances that you've written and talked about the most has been food, processed food, um, and of course how this contributes to metabolic disease. It seems like our healthcare system is set up, albeit not the best, to treat metabolic problems more than to prevent them. Is it hopeless? Where do you see this going? Well, right now, we have more money going out for chronic metabolic disease than for everything else. In fact, 75% of our health care expenditures are for the diseases that constitute metabolic syndrome. That is type 2 diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and dementia. You add that up, that's 75% of expenditures. Here's the math. The food industry grosses $1.46 trillion a year, of which $657 billion gross profit. They're making a huge profit. However, health care expenditures are $3.2 trillion, of which 75% is chronic metabolic disease, of which 75% of that could be prevented if we could fix the food problem. Bottom line, you can't have health care reform unless you have health reform. And you can't have health reform unless you have diet reform. Now, Obamacare promised that we could put 32 million sick people onto the rolls and that we would pay for it with preventative services. By being able to go to your doctor, you wouldn't have to use the emergency room, which costs 50 times as much. And that's how we would be able to pay for all these people. Turns out that with Obamacare, emergency room visits went up not down. And costs went so high that three of the major insurers opted out. And that was one of the reasons for the election of 2016, focusing on health care. Here's the problem. Obamacare did not address diet. But neither does Trump care, and neither does the current Senate and House bills that are trying to repeal and replace. The bottom line is, until we address the problem of diet, which will also, of course, address the question of pleasure and happiness at the same time, we will not see an improvement in our health care system anytime soon. This has to be front and center. In addition, um, food is 20% of investment, but it is 40% of climate change. Agriculture contributes 40% of climate change. So if people are worried about this problem, as they should be, then 
fixing America's diet has to be front and center for the two biggest problems that we have today, climate change and health care. This is at the center of both of these phenomena, and we will not be able to solve it until we start to address it. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you to write this book in the first place? So I've known about the dopamine-serotonin connection for 30 years. I knew about this when I was a postdoctoral fellow at Rockefeller University, cutting up rat brains and you know, studying um, how um, uh, hormones affected neurons. But it wasn't until 2014 when I was giving psychiatry grand rounds at a major medical school here in the United States. And I talked to the outpatient coordinator of their recovery program, who herself was a reformed heroin addict. And she told me something that was so jarring. What she said to me was, she said, when I was shooting up, I was happy. What my new life has brought me is pleasure. And I thought to myself, wait a second, this is exactly opposite. When she was shooting up, that's what brought her pleasure because it was heroin. And her new life has provided her with a more steady, long-term feeling of contentment. So I thought to myself, how often does this happen? And is this potentially at the bottom of why we have an opioid and an addiction crisis. And I've talked with many psychiatrists who have had the same experiences told to them by their patients. About a week and a half after I got back from that trip, I was talking to my sister-in-law, and she used to work the help desk at Pillsbury before they were taken over by General Mills. You know, like what people would call in, you know, why they have icicles and they're popping fresh dough, you know, and, you know, stuff, you know, why the, the carton would, you know, the microwave carton would melt, you know, in the, in the microwave, things like that. Um, and she was stayed friends with the people she worked with, and they had a gourmet club every year, and they would all bring things. And one of the members of her gourmet club said to my sister-in-law, you always stay so nice and thin. How do you do it? And this woman had just undergone bariatric surgery for obesity. And my sister-in-law said, well, really, I just only eat when I'm hungry. And the woman said to her, eating for hunger? Eating is for happiness. And I thought to myself, aha. You know, I take care of obese kids for a living. And I've heard that story, but it was never so jarring as when I heard this, uh, uh, you know, this discussion. And I put the two together and I said, you know, we don't know the difference. And indeed, there is an entire paper trail of not knowing the difference. And you can see it on television, on YouTube, virtually every day. Coca-Cola's open happiness campaign. Happy hour. Okay, Cialis. <laughs> Will you be ready? You know, add a little stress thrown in. Bottom line, we have mistaken the experience of pleasure for the experience of happiness. And so we continue to drive our interest in pleasure at the expense of our happiness. And you can't undo the paradigm unless you understand it.
and the four C's are the way to fix the problem. Thank you for talking with us today about your new book. You can buy Rob Lustig's new book, The Hacking of the American Mind, at Amazon.com or a bookstore near you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.